pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we, you know, if you were looking for Philemon, and uh, you'd find it between Titus and Hebrews, uh, but it's, you know, for whatever reason, we oftentimes overlook books of the Bible because of how short they are, um, which is a huge mistake. Uh, we'll be looking at Second and Third John at some point, probably in 24 uh, on Wednesday nights, and uh, they're even shorter. And one of the most, uh, as I was thinking about this over the last week or so, I was remembering that one of the richest studies uh, I ever did was teaching through the book of Jude. It was so rich and wonderful. And again, so many people would just overlook that short one-page book, but it's uh, filled, packed with so much blessing. Now, let me give you a little bit of context about what's going on. Paul writes this letter from probably, arguably, the most productive point in his life. He's imprisoned in Rome, but this is his first imprisonment. It's not to be confused with his second imprisonment, which is when he wrote Second Timothy, which is when he's in the horrible dungeon, and he's asking for his coat, and, you know, he's in really bad shape, and he ends up ultimately dying in that imprisonment. This is the first imprisonment in Rome where Paul is on house arrest. And uh, here's the context of the situation. It's an amazing time in his life. The Bible tells us about it in Acts 28. It says that he lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So for a pastor, that's like a dream come true right there, except for the at your own expense part. But other than that, I mean, hey, it's an awesome blessing. So you got to realize that he's, at this time, I mean, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, Philemon. They're all written in this span of time, and he is just witnessing and teaching and making disciples every day because he has freedom. He just can't go anywhere, but he has freedom for anybody to come and go. Uh, he's not seen as a threat, although, uh, although Nero is the emperor, it's before Nero goes crazy and becomes a psychopath. So in the beginning, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that bad. So let's talk about some background about the book of Philemon, all right? First of all, who is Philemon? Well, he is a, a man, a Christian living in Colossae. Uh, he's a Jesus follower, um, probably a businessman. He's rather uh, astute. I mean, he's... Uh, somewhat successful uh, because the church, at least a portion of the church in Colossae, meets in his house. And uh, we know he has a godly wife and godly kids, and God's using him in a mighty way. So there's two main characters, Philemon, obviously, whom the book is, uh, the letter's titled to, and then Onesimus. And Onesimus is a runaway slave who's owned by Philemon, but as he was on the lamb, uh, he was in Rome, and he meets Paul, and God saves him. And it would have been very common in this time that if you were 
a slave and something happened that created a situation where um, you fled, Rome is where you would go because it would be the simplest, easiest place for you to get lost in the crowd and blend in because it was by far the largest city. And so if you go there, you know, there's nobody knows who anybody is, so it's an easy place to disappear. So what Paul does is uh, gives us this short letter that he pens, sending Onesimus, who, who he's now become very close to, who's been spending time with Paul in this very fruitful time in you know, house arrest. He then sends Onesimus back to Colossae to make things right with Philemon, which makes perfect sense. You know, uh, this exact scenario, basically, uh, just different context, but, but the exact situation was one of my favorite stories of my father-in-law's uh, ministry. Uh, there was a man in his church who, who was very productive and, you know, came to faith in Christ and was serving in a lot of ways and, you know, just was one of the, one of, just one of the great blessings to my father-in-law's heart. Um, you know, did a lot of stuff in the church and served in various positions and things of that nature. I mean, he wasn't on staff, but you know, I think he was a deacon and different things. So one, I mean, you know, some years passed, and then one Sunday, uh, I, my father-in-law was preaching, and God really convicted his heart. And he comes down to the altar, and he's just broken and crying and weeping and just a complete wreck. And he tells my father-in-law that in his past in California, he uh, committed a felony and ran and got away. And that it was years ago and that nobody knew anything and he was free and clear and he never told anybody and it's been eating at him all this time. And so... My father-in-law, of course, was in absolute shock that he was having this conversation. Uh, you know, he sits down and gets the full scoop from him and everything. And so he says, well, we need to go to California. I mean, some of you have heard me tell this story before. And uh, you can imagine the look on the guy's face. And so my father-in-law buys two plane tickets, and they load up, fly to California, and uh, walk into the district attorney's office in the county where the crime was committed, and sit down and tell the district attorney the whole story. And, you know, I can't tell the details like he would, but it was just remarkable. The district attorney, of course, was like, why would you tell me this? You know, like, you should have never come here, you know, because now he's implicated in it. Now he's, you know, and so, my, of course, my father-in-law is like, well, because we believe in Jesus and, you know, right is right and wrong is wrong and this is what needs to happen and, you know, he needs to confess it and make things right and whatever it is. And the district attorney said, you do realize that, you know, that this crime carries a sentence of, multiple decades of imprisonment and he's like yep and whatever happens happens and so the long story is the judge 
completely exonerated him. But you can imagine the gospel opportunity between the judge and they're in the courtroom and all these criminals are like, are you out of your mind? You know, so it reminds me of this because I can imagine Paul telling Onesimus, okay, here's what we're going to do. And he's thinking, are you out of your mind? But um, because, you know, his crime would have been, uh, according to uh, Roman law, uh, no doubt probably punishable by death. So the question really is, well, why is Paul writing this letter? And you have to understand that what he wants is Philemon to work through the radical implications of the gospel. Now, I'm going to talk about this a little bit of how it's what, what happens is it's so easy because of the context and the details that we have here that we're, we could get off track and start chasing a rabbit in the wrong direction and miss what God has. Uh, so we have to understand the purpose of what this is. A, this is all about the gospel. That's what this is about. This isn't a primarily about social justice, although it is, but that's not primarily what we're talking about. So this letter represents Paul's plea to Philemon to forgive Onesimus, who is no longer a slave, but is now a brother in Christ. So what Paul says is, right in the introduction, in a few minutes we'll get to it, right in the opening couple of lines, Paul says, and your brother Onesimus, which is not what Philemon thinks of Onesimus. Of course, he doesn't know what's been going on. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know any of this. But he certainly is not thinking of him as a brother. So he's no longer a slave, but now he's a brother in Christ. Now, let's talk about uh, a couple things for a few minutes. What, what you need to understand is that th- this principle is always at play. And that is that we never come to the Bible as a blank slate. So what happens is is that I can read a text of Scripture, and what we, you know, maybe you know this, but we don't think about it a lot of times. But here's what you need to understand. Everyone in the room is hearing the same words, but thinking different things. Because we don't come as a blank slate. It's not like we're just this blank slate, and, you know, we come and we sit down and we go, we're going to study this book. Even, Even if you've never heard of the book of Philemon, it doesn't matter. You're not a blank slate because you've lived and you've been influenced and you've been impacted and you're, you've got a personality and you've got all these things that have, that have, you know, you've got all these voices that you've heard all your life. You've heard your parents and your grandparents and your teachers and your coaches and, your, and, and on and on it goes and your employer and your siblings and your spouse and your kids and, and you know, and that's just what it would have been in this context. One of the huge problems that we have with studying, interpreting, and understanding the Bible in the modern church is that it's always been a challenge because of the messiness of the slates that we come to Christ in, that we come to the Bible in. But, but think about how much more challenging that is today because now we not only are greatly impacted by all the voices that we've heard physically, but now we've heard many, many multiplications of voices 
impacting us and barraging us digitally. So social media has greatly impacted the slate that you are. Whatever you, whatever you watch, whatever you listen to, whatever. Imagine in this context, the only voices that would have would have impacted people would have been people they met, things that they heard, or some secondhand stories. Think of how far we've gone away from that. You watch things. You listen to things. You have access to things from all over the world and all over. And it all, every word that goes in your ear has weight. And most of you, the sad truth is, do not heed any of the warning that I just said. You don't because all, that's all you know. And so you don't even realize what it's doing to you. You don't even realize. And so this, and this is why I'm saying this, because the book of Philemon is a book about a runaway slave who Paul is reconciling to his master. You see how that can get dicey? And here's the thing. This book has been used in the past by people who were promoting slavery. Who claimed to be Christians and yet were slave owners. I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about the kind of slavery in the Bible. I'm talking about the kind of slavery in our country. So what does that tell you? That tells you how... Now, now understand, I'm talking about the slate of, let's say, the 1800s. Let's use the 1800s. So if you could bend the slate to use... a, a Because even if you don't even know what the, what the book of Philemon says, you're smart enough to know that it... It doesn't say that. But here's the thing. In the 1800s, the slate was warped enough to be up for people to use that. Most slave owners would be in in a church with a Bible every Sunday. Singing hymns. So you don't think your slate is important? You have no idea how important it is. And the very fact that a book that is absolutely 100% a, a treatise, not primarily, but a treatise in composition against any abusive uh, uh, behavior towards another human being was used to promote the very thing that it's operating against proves how powerful your personal perspective influences how you interpret the Bible. Our initial interpretation of Scripture is always 
100% of the time, biased. As obsessively, compulsively aware of this as I am in my life, I'm obsessive about this. Literally. My wife turns on the news. I get up, I leave the living room. Based on the what's on the television. I leave the living room. I'm not... I, ref, I will not allow it in my because because here's the thing what, that that's to me what God's called me to do if I get warped what answers will I have to answer for and so but but I already know that that because I have a slate. And I've heard voices, and I've been, you know, I grew up just like you. And so all those different people and things, and, you know, they, uh, we all have personal bias. And so, therefore, we must be so careful about who teaches and influences us. See, I would say that you got to be super careful just about whatever you let in your, your, your ears, period, but my goodness, when it comes to something like if I'm going to listen with, a, with a, an ear towards learning, man, like there's a extraordinarily high uh, standard for that in my life. And there should be in your life. And so when people say things like, I'm looking for a church that has great music. I'm looking for a church that has great kids programs. I'm looking for a church that has dynamic speakers. I'm looking for a church that has people my age. There's nothing wrong with any of those statements except for if you are under the teaching of somebody because of the music or because of the kids programs or because of the other people your age you are playing Russian roulette like Is that important? Of course it is. But it cannot be the priority. It cannot be. I would say the most important distinction of a church is teaching the whole Bible in context. I mean, I could expound on that in a lot of ways, but I think that's the simplest way I would say it. Teaching the whole counsel of God in the context in which it was delivered to us. I don't mean the order. I mean the context. So let me explain what I'm talking about. You see, the big malfunction is the confusion here where, where, where people don't understand that transformation doesn't come through what the Bible says. Does not. 
which is every time I make this point, especially on a Wednesday night, I always make the point of, because I know there are kids right now in the next building reciting verses, they have no idea what in the world it means. Some of you were, uh, you know, cramming it down on the way to church, trying to make sure you could get the last word straight in the right order and all that kind of stuff. And is it, Look, I'm not knocking it. I'm not knocking you. Praise God. At least you're here. At least your kids are here. You're trying. You're, but, and is it, it's better than, than the alternative. But understand that transformation comes through understanding what the Bible means. You see, if you just know what it says, it's not that that's not valuable. It's just that it's not nearly as valuable. Because it, it, there's, it, there's so much there's so much room for error when it comes to how are you going to carry that out? I mean, I don't have time to go into this. I mean, we've preached on this extensively. I mean, if you, I think you can go back and uh, go through that series we did in Proverbs. Was that, Matt, called Crossroads? Is that what that was called? And, and we talk about that in multiple sections of that. But listen... Wisdom, yes, basic certain things, sure. But wisdom takes understanding. So in order to apply the Bible into things, into all the, the majority of things you face in life, which are not things specifically, you know, there's not a verse that says thou shalt not or thou shalt. You're going to have to apply wisdom. You need understanding for that. Otherwise, what ends up happening is, Oftentimes, a far cry from what God intends. See, what, hap- what, what you need to understand is that context explains why the text was written, which leads us to its meaning. Which is why the first thing we got to do is make sure that we're certain that we all understand why Paul wrote to Philemon. Because the gospel was always central to for Paul. And this is a gospel issue. Are other things broken? Yes. But, but whenever, whenever we're, we're ministering to, to, to somebody, you know, you're, somebody comes to you and, and, you know, they've got a problem in their life, or maybe you're, you have a burden because somebody that you know, maybe you know, one of your brothers and sisters in Christ is living in a way they ought not live. The object is not to go to them and get them to change their behavior. The object is to get them to live out the implications of the gospel, which will change their behavior and every other behavior. It's always the gospel. But what happens is the same thing in parenting. Don't parent the behavior, parent the gospel. Don't shepherd behavior, shepherd the heart. 
That's what the Bible does. That's what we're supposed to do. This is my favorite quote about, so, you know, like anytime, you know, if somebody, like maybe one of you gets, you know, is, uh, is, gets a job or moves away or whatever, and you come to me and you're like, you know, I'm moving to wherever, Timbuktu, and I need to find a church. You know, I'm like, well, I'll text you this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and you just uh, keep this in your back pocket every time you sit in the church. What is preaching? He says, logic on fire. Preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. A true understanding and experience of the truth must lead to this. I say again that a man who can speak about these things dispassionately has no right whatsoever to be in the pulpit and should never be allowed to enter one. So I can assure you, so long as I am alive and here, I will defend this pulpit with my life. I mean, you know, I'm human. It could, I could get fooled or something. But here's the thing. If, if somehow, which, let's say, you've been around here a while. I mean, like last Sunday... Some of you are thinking, when was the last time somebody other than one of our pastors preached here? Years. Well, this is one of the reasons why. But let's suppose hypothetically that whoever was up here, it really doesn't matter whether it would have been somebody that we invited in or, or whoever is up here and things start going off the rails. What do you think is going to happen? If you see me come running from over there, bull rush and, and, and tackle them onto the floor, you know what just happened. So, with that being said, let's, you know, let's make sure we address the elephant in the room. So what does the Bible say about slavery? Because here's what happens. So many people think the book of Philemon is about slavery. Which again, I'll say, it is, but not primarily. And if you don't understand primarily what it's about, you will misapply it, and you can get into all sorts of error. So what does the Bible say about slavery? Well, my goodness. First of all, look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is just one illustration of uh, how simple it would be to, to solve this conversation. The law is not laid down, Paul says to Timothy, for, uh, for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, the sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murders, for sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexual sexuality, circle, enslavers, circle that. That's all, all forms of slavery, human trafficking, any, any oppression of another human being, liars, perjurers, or whatever else that is contrary to sound doctrine. So there's no ambiguity whatsoever in the Bible. But let's just, while we're here, because we have an opportunity to have a conversation that we don't normally have an opportunity to have, let's have it. 
There's two massive mountaintop peaks in biblical uh, revelation that have to be dealt with with regards to this issue. The first one is creation. Creation, because it tells us that all humans are made equally in God's image. So that's the first thing. Now you got to remember, yet hundreds of years you got people who were in church every single Sunday and practicing absolute and utter wickedness. And culturally, I mean, do, do spend some time, and, and some of you, I'm sure, are know history. Nazi Germany was a religious culture. You don't think your slate matters? You got people who are in church on Sunday marching people to gas chambers on Monday. And don't connect the dots. And if you think you're somehow above that or beyond that, you are delusional. You're delusional. I could hurt a bunch of people's feelings right now, but I'm not because I'm, I'm in a good mood. So let's be happy. Because if I got on politics right now, I would hurt your feelings so bad. Because your slate is jacked up. That's all I'm saying. So you got a mountain peak over here is, the, is creation. The other one is the gospel. The gospel itself tells us that God overcame every racial, social, religious division at the cross. And will one day create a people from every nation, from every tribe, people, language, who will dwell together in perfect harmony. So the, the, the culmination of the central message of the entire Bible is what? Unity and equality. Yes. That's what, that's what being in Christ is all about. So now, but, but also I do need to say this. That you, you would have to be drastically ignorant and incompetent to connect the word doulos in the New Testament that's trans, translated slave to the slavery that you're thinking about in the United States and North America. They could not be further apart. Not, not that it wasn't wrong in the New Testament, but it was nothing compared to what was going on in the United States. Okay? So they're not the same thing. And you need to understand that. But it's still, the gospel weighs on it the same. Okay? All right. So let's look at how this begins. So we got Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. That's how the letter starts. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. So let's talk about who we are. Because, because right off the bat, this is where Paul's coming. He's coming headlong into identity. Who are we? Well, so we're going to develop this sentence. And here's how we're going to start. We're going to start with we're under divine sovereignty. We're under divine sovereignty. Now, how do I know that? Because of what Paul says, that he's a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how do you get divine sovereignty from that? Well, simple. Who would say that? 
You know what? You know what we would say? You would say, you would write in your letter your name, and you would say, a prisoner in need of rescue, hurry up and come get me. That's what we would say. But Paul doesn't say that. See, Paul understands that we're new creations with new identities, and now we have a new and divine purpose. Paul is so different from any way that your slate would incline you to think because Paul, now remember, Paul comes with a, a slate of, of uh, he was a, a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So he has a, a, a huge slate that he comes to the gospel with. But look at how the gospel has unraveled and unwound and how Jesus has just dismantled all of that to the place where he's so confident in who the Bible says that he is that his circumstances don't seem to almost, they, they almost seem to have almost no effect on him whatsoever. So Paul, how many, how many, how many books in the New Testament did Paul write? Thirteen. Of the 13 books, every one of them starts with a, an opening greeting, and in every one of them, Paul refers to himself, you know, introduces himself in some way. Nine of the 13, he introduces himself as an apostle. The typical way he starts a letter is Paul the apostle. That's the normal, typical way. So three times he introduces himself with the word doulos, slave. Now, many times Paul refers to himself as a slave, but I'm talking about introduction. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the first impression. It's, it's overwhelmingly usually apostle. Then it's occasionally slave, but it's only here. Prisoner. Now, other times he's, he talks about him being a prisoner, but he doesn't introduce himself that way. Only here he introduces himself as prisoner. So it's unique in that way. Now, he doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome, which is what he is, but he doesn't call himself that way. I mean, in other words, that's not what he is, but that's what anybody would see him as. But that's not what he says. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He says he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He understands that his incarceration, his apparent problem, his, his apparent crises, his apparent restriction, or whatever word you want to put on it, he, he knows that it's not a result of the evil rule of Nero or the Roman government. It's not Satan, you know, attacking him or, or getting him to, uh, holding him here or whatever the case may be. No. It's for Christ Jesus in his mind. He understands. See, what Paul is saying is, is that I'm a prisoner by divine appointment. Paul is utterly confident that where he is is exactly where God wants him to be, which is so important. 
Are you where God wants you to be? Are you aware of the fact that you're where God wants to be? Now, don't misunderstand because, again, if we had two hours, I'm not saying that all of you are where God wants you to be because I know that's not true. But here's what worries me is that there's a contingency of people in the room that don't know how to discern whether they are where God wants them to be, which is a problem. You should be able to discern that. You see, there, there are, are different ways. I knew I was going to get into this. There's different ways that you can be somewhere. You can be somewhere by choice or you can be somewhere by force. So there are things that are true in your life right now that you can't do anything about. They just are. You might have done something in the past to cause them, but, it, but you can't go back and change it. Or you might have not done anything and it just is. And so there's a huge category of things that just are and, they, and you can't change them. You don't have the power to change them. So those are the easy ones. Why are, you, why are you there? Why is that true in your life? Because God allowed it. And so here you are. See, whether, whether it's good or bad or whatever, it's still where God wants you. Let, let's, say you're, let's say that what you're thinking about right now, which, you know, I know you're thinking it, even though probably half the people thinking it are wrong, but the other half might be right. You're somewhere and you're thinking that I, where I am There's something about my life that I can't change, that I didn't want, but it's a consequence of something I did in the past. Okay, who initiated the consequence? Who who had authority over the consequence? So you are under a consequence by the will of God for your good. Right? Now, what about all the things that you have choices over? What about all the doors that are open? Do I walk through the door? Do I not walk through the door? Do I do this? Do I not? What about all those? How do you discern? Well, the first thing you have to understand is stop focusing on the thing and start by understanding what is God's, what is God's will? Not what is God's will about this door. What is God's will for me in general? What's God's priority for me as a person, as his child? Is God is God mostly concerned about my finances? Is he mostly concerned about my happiness? Is he mostly concerned about my success? Is he mostly concerned about my security? Is he mostly, go through the list of all the things that you use to make decisions on and it's What is he mostly concerned about? Your character. So there's the door. This door open. Two doors open. You can go this way or this way. Which door should I go through? I don't care. Doesn't matter. Here's what you do. You say, if I walk through this door, what impact will it have on my character? If I walk through this door, what impact will it have on my character? Is this rocket science? This is the most basic, simple wisdom logic application. 
What, what's it going to have? What impact will it have? Now, let's say both of them have the same impact on my character, or at least as far as I can know. Then pick one and walk through it. But here's what you do. Once you've walked through that door, taken the job, you know, uh, moved into a relationship, whatever the case may be, assess the situation. I'm a month in. I'm two months in. I'm six months in. Am I, am I more in love with Jesus than I was before I came through this door? Is being in this position increasing my character or decreasing it? And that answers the question. All right, we ain't got time. Come on. It's simple. Simple. See, at the end of the day, only one thing matters. Stop with all this. Stop. Don't, don't ever tell another person and do not ever tell yourself, I don't know what God's will is. Stop saying that. Because here's why. You're lying. I'm about to tell you what God's will is. In every situation, in every single situation, it's God's will. All that matters in life is that you please God. Just do everything according to that. If it doesn't please God, don't do it. If it pleases God, do it. If you don't know if it's going to please God, then walk cautiously into it and evaluate the situation as you're in it. That's it. And guess what would happen? Across the room, anxiety would disappear. It would just disappear. You'd start eating better. You'd start sleeping better. You'd get off high blood pressure medicine. You would, you're, you would become, you, you'd become healthier, more stable, less irritable. You'd and you'd become peaceful. You know why? Because every single night you lay your head down and you can go to sleep. Do you know what tomorrow holds? Nope, but here's the only thing that matters. You know what I did today? What pleases God. And you'll just go to sleep and you'll have peace. You know what you're anxious about? You know what you're ate up about? You know what you're worrying all the time about? You know what you're, because you're obsessed with all the wrong things. That's why. Look, Paul is in prison, and you know what he knows? It's not an accident. It's not, it's not some unfortunate circumstance. It's not bad luck. It's not karma. It's not punishment. It's none of those things. Is it comfortable? No. But that's not the priority. Paul's where he is, and so, what, so he can't choose whether to be in prison or not, but you know what he can do? He can say, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to please God. And five books in the New Testament were written in jail. Think about that. 
What could you be accomplishing in the kingdom of God if you could just get this right? In a couple weeks, we'll get down to verse 13. He says, I would have been glad to have kept Onesimus with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. See how he sees this whole thing as for the gospel. Is it easy? No, I need help. I would have kept him. He's useful. I need help. It's not, it's not as good as being free. It's not as good as, but guess what? That's okay. I'm pleasing God. Man, you could be set free. Some of you could just be set free. You're so ate up. Your slate is so warped and so blurry and so bent and so wrong. You spend all day mulling over aimless, pointless nonsense. Worrying about things you have no control to change. Burying yourself under a mountain of things that are literally oozing with opportunity. And you never participate in it because you're, all you can see is yourself. And there's people all around you going to hell and you don't say a word. Because you're miserable, because you're not happy, because you don't have what you want. Because things didn't go the way you want them to go. And your whole life is devoted to you wanting so bad to be God. And your worst nightmare is for that dream to come true. I am in a good mood for real. Number two. Number two. So we are part of a family under divine sovereignty. So we're not just under divine sovereignty, but we're under a family. So he says, Paul, a prisoner For Jesus Christ, under divine sovereignty, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister. So we got all this family implication in this passage. Like the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, or Galatians chapter 4, to redeem those uh, that we're under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're, we're, we see salvation makes us family under divine sovereignty. So why does Paul, why does Paul include all these people? He writes a letter to Philemon, but notice what he does. He, he brings Timothy in. He brings Aphia in. He brings uh, Archippus in. And he brings the whole church at Colossae and the church in your house. It's, it's a conversation between Paul and Philemon, but he brings all these people in right off the bat. Why? Accountability. Because why? Because you're part of a family. See, let me tell you what happens. 
I don't have a conversation with somebody in my family. Now, sometimes I have a conversation with people in my family, one-on-one, obviously, because everything's not meant to, uh, to be had with everybody. Newsflash, some of y'all need to write that down. But anyway, but here's the thing. Come on, we got to keep moving. My brain wants to just jump off on. Okay. But every conversation I have with someone in my family impacts the whole family. Everything you do impacts us. Yes. You're not on an island because you're part of a family. So we're interconnected. So there's accountability. That's the whole idea. That's why we're a family. That's why we are so big on community. See, when Paul sends the letter of Philemon, you know what he does? He literally sends it with Colossians. Like at the same time. So the church at Colossae got the letter of Colossians and Philemon at the same exact time. Colossians chapter 4, Tychicus will tell you, see, he's, he's the one, this is the end of Colossians. He's the one that's bringing this letter to Colossae. He says, he'll tell you all of my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that we may encourage, you may encourage our hearts. Uh, and with him, Onesimus, so he sent Onesimus with him, with the letter of Philemon, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. See how all this is happening? Like this deal with Philemon and Onesimus, it ain't their private business. Everybody is in on this. Paul's bringing everybody in to make sure that we all understand how this is supposed to go. You know why? Because if if the gospel is the issue, then we're all involved because we're all we're all purveyors, we're all participants in, we're all people who live our lives under the same gospel. We're we're family. It's the same. So, like any matter of faith, this letter is personal but not private. Again, it's just a huge thing to understand. You may have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it is not in any way, shape, or form ever been intended to be private. You don't have a private relationship with Christ because if it's private, you're lost. According to the Bible, there's no such thing as a private relationship with Jesus. See, because in order for that to be what you think is you, a person who says that thinks that God showed them partiality, and I can assure you, you are mocking God, and the consequences of that are not going to be good. He didn't show you partiality. There's no such thing. There is no such thing in the economy of God. Zero, none, nada, not ever, never, ever. See, Paul would never say, listen, 
look, Philemon, I know that in your secular life you got this stuff going on over here, but just keep it over there, but don't drag that junk into the church. That's not how Paul rolls. That's not how the Bible sees life. See, some of you, you got this whole other life going on out there. You, you do things at work that you don't want anybody around here to know about. You, you have habits and hobbies and things and relationships and stuff or whatever the case may be. And you think it's perfectly fine to have your private little zone over here, but then your church zone over here. And you are a fool. You are a fool. You are mocking God. Listen, I, hey, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't want everybody to run up here and confess it to me. I'm like the judge going, why did you have to come here and tell me that? Because if you do, what am I going to do? I'm running into it. But the, the danger is you think you're fine. You think you're getting away with it. You think you're, you think everything's good. Look, I mean, I just got a problem with a little bit of a filthy mouth. Don't ever say that around me. I don't mean don't ever cuss. Definitely don't ever do that. But don't ever just say I have a problem with a filthy mouth. You got a way bigger problem than a filthy mouth. You got a way bigger problem with what's saved on the DVR at home on your television. You got a way bigger problem with what you're binging on Netflix. You got a way bigger problem with what you're reading, with who you're listening to, with what's going on at work, with how you're scooting the edges, with how you're, you know, getting away with this and getting away with that. You ain't getting away with nothing. Not one thing. Not ever. There's zero chance. That's the most foolish thing in the world. There's no private relationship. It doesn't exist in the New Testament. Listen, according to the Bible, to follow Christ at all is seeking to follow him in everything. That's it. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're there. Is, look, is Philemon perfect? No. We're all growing, and this is a growth opportunity for Philemon. But understand, you're seeking. You're seeking. It's, the question is not, is every single thing in your life pleasing God today? Well, dear Lord, I don't know. But is everything you know about? Is everything, you see, because when I was talking a few minutes ago, all these things were popping into your head. Now, I don't know what they are, but isn't it funny how they popped into your head and you feel guilty about them and you've been feeling guilty about them and you just keep putting it out of your head and don't change it? Because you're getting away with it. You're so smart. It's awesome. You got everybody fooled except for the judge you're going to stand before who goes to and fro. His eyes see every single move and motivation and desire of your heart. And so there might be something that you've been warring with in your life that you've been battling with. 
and you weep over it and it grieves you and you hate it because it's not pleasing to God and all of your grief and weeping and angst and, and stri- is pleasing to God. But what about you that just, you, you don't, you're not weeping over it. You think you're slick. You got it over there tucked away in a box nobody knows about. And you think you're just skating by. (sighs) Number three. We're not just under authority. We're not just a family under, under divine sovereignty. But we're under divine sovereignty and authority. Authority. So now we start to expand out our sentence. Authority. So it says to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. See that? Notice fellow worker, underline fellow worker. Then under, underline uh, Archippus is our fellow soldier. So we don't just have this familial brother and sister context, but now we have we have co-worker, soldier. So Paul's bringing in this other element of, of what's going on here. See, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, sharing the suffering is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Have I said that tonight, maybe? Is that ringing a bell to anybody? You think I just made that up? It's all over the Bible. Just live your life to to be pleasing to God. And you won't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Yeah. You think about soldiers, how they're under authority. You know what? Soldiers on active service do not expect a safe and easy time. I mean, can you imagine... You imagine that if if we were in a wartime situation and we were going into war, I look around the room, I think, man, there is some serious seals in this room that I, I want in the bunker with me for sure. But there are some of you that are, you don't even know you're a soldier. Your whole life is wrapped up in trying to fix it to what you want. Like imagine a soldier in active service worrying about their comfort. You think any Ukrainian soldiers tonight are running around trying to get comfortable? They're trying to live. A distracted soldier is a dead one. You wrapped up in civilian pursuits, it ain't going to last long. Now, Now think about this group of people. Now, I didn't say this earlier, but Philemon, Archippus, we believe, is his wife. Uh, we got, uh, they, were, they were stoned to death by Nero, according to church history, uh, a couple years from this moment. I mean, uh, 
His, his son, I believe, was Archippus. Church history says he was stabbed to death by a mob. And so you've got Alphaeus, Philemon, husband and wife. They're killed for the gospel. Son, fellow co-worker, soldier, killed for the gospel. These are faithful people that gave their life for the gospel, just like Paul will give his life for the gospel. So things, things are bad in this moment when this letter is being written and sent, but they're not getting better. They're getting way, way, way worse. Way worse. Way worse. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about this family. We're part of a family. Under divine sovereignty and authority of a really good father. Just a really good father. Grace to you and peace from from Paul? No. It's from God. God who God who revealed himself as father, God who Paul looks at as father? Paul's father? No. My father, your father, our Abba, our daddy. Grace and peace from him, our father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, our heir. Look, our co-heir. Look at that, man. See, the grace of God is not given to repair damaged people. It does that, but that's not the point. The grace of God is given to transform broken people from the inside out. See, here's the thing. That's why Paul isn't going to get wrapped up in behavior modification. Paul could have said, Dear Philemon, I could, he could have wrote this letter in four sentences. Dear Philemon, from the Apostle Paul. Slavery's wrong. It's a reproach to God. It's anti-gospel. I'm sending Onesimus back. I command you to repent, receive him, and do the right thing, period. Send it. He had the authority to do that. That's not what he did. Look at the context of how he, he sends it in the context of, of grace and peace. He sends it in the context because why? Because the Bible is trying to get us to see that the answer to the brokenness, to the problems, is the gospel. And when the gospel implications, when the gospel enters in and does its transforming work within us and begins to change us from the inside out, 
all these other things work out. See, sometimes we have to have hard conversations about about behavior. But even then, it's in the context of the gospel. But those conversations would never even have to be had if the gospel conversations that were pinging your ears for months and years prior to had been actually getting into your heart. Because that would have accomplished it for you. See, you think about it. You think about the God who reigns on the throne of the universe. Just think about the implications of our conversation tonight. Some of you, let's be, come on. A little more pain and then we'll be done. Some of you are going to do nothing. You're going you're to push this conversation about your slate out of your mind. You're not going to go home and clean out your cabinet or clean up your DVR or throw out your router or go to work and you're not going to you're not flying to California to the DA's office and walk. you know what you're going to do nothing just like you've done before now as brilliant as you may seem in your own head what do you think the god of the universe if in fact if in fact which is a big if, but if in fact he bled out his only son to redeem you, you think he's just going to let that slide? Huh? You think you're just going to cruise on by with that? Does that make any sense to you? So what feels like, to some of you, you might even feel right now like punishment, which is absurd. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God inviting you to the peace of God that you don't have because you won't listen. But if you listen... You receive it. Did you see? You just happened to be here. Just happened to be tonight. It just happened to be that I'm saying. Just all of these, all of these random consequences just happened to be. Come on. See how foolish we are? You see how our slate warps so easily? So easily. Do not be conformed to this world, Romans 12, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yes, that you may prove that which is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Remember, I don't know the will of God. Huh? The Bible just said, you can prove it. You can prove the good, acceptable, perfect. That's what, in our vernacular, is we say things like the center of God's will. Okay. The center of God's will. You can prove it. 
If you're in Christ, you can prove it. What's, what's holding you back? It's so valuable. Those activities that aren't pleasing to him mean that much to you. That, that unholy is so, it's so, it's so wonderful that you look, just think of how absurd this conversation is. And the, the, the perfect, acceptable will of God is right there for you. It's right there. You can have it. When is the difference between conformed people and transformed people most obvious? It's not in the Jubilee. No. It's when it gets hard. It's when it gets hard. Imagine all the people in Ukraine that used to say, I love my country. I would die for my country. Well, guess what we found out in the last year? We found out who will and won't, haven't we? See, all the, it's easy to talk when there's no danger. But what happens when the war starts? Uh-oh. See, it's obvious by what, what, what you do. You fold up like a, like, a, like a cheap napkin when life gets difficult. You just, whoop, whoop, you gone. There's a calamity in your life. Things get hard, difficult. You, you know, well, yeah, I can't, you know, you start backing out of your responsibilities. I can't serve right now because I got all this other stuff going on. I got this, I got that. You know, you're, you're you know, wrapped up in all blah, blah, blah. You know, you're, you're not faithful in your shirt. You know, it's, a, it's just on and on and on it goes. All you're doing is waving the flag that you're just conformed. You're just waving the flag of conformity over your life. You're not transformed. Because in hard times, that's when transformation is absolutely, positively visible. Visible. So... You know, why, why agonize over all this? I mean, we've just spent an hour on the first three verses. Why didn't we just skim right on into the meat of the letter? Because what's, what's at stake here? The opportunity that's before us. We get to play a role in the unfolding of the biggest, best, and most satisfying true story ever told. The story, God's plan for the creation, redemption, and destiny of the universe. So see a man in prison. Who believe me, two years from where he is right now, it's going to seem like the Ritz Carlton. But that's what that's what ha- that's what's at stake 
when we live our lives just according to a desire to be pleasing to God. All right?